After the death of Alexander of Macedonia, popularly known as Alexander the Great, in 323 BCE, and before the Roman Empire took hold of the area just after the Battle of Actium in 31 BCE, the Mediterranean region, from the modern-day Balkans over to modern-day Turkey, and to some degree stretching even as far as Western Europe and the Indian subcontinent, the cultures in these regions were all heavily influenced by Greek culture. This was in part a consequence of colonization throughout this region, with Greek settlements and kingdoms springing up via migration and conquest throughout Asia and Africa. But it was also a consequence of trade and the export of Greek culture, which, for a variety of reasons, was relatively well-developed compared to the many other distinct cultures of the era in that area. And thus, when a new Greek song came to your town, or a new Greek drama was performed, that became the cat's meow, superseding a lot of the locally grown work in terms of cultural influence. The Greek language became the common language of trade and culture. Greek clothing was adopted and riffed upon by people throughout this region, and Hellenistic aesthetics became dominant, and many places nudging aside the local understanding of what looks good and replacing it with the Hellenistic ideal, Hellenistic referring to the Greek cultural vibe of this moment in time, which interestingly was actually defined in part by its moving away from ideal shapes and figures. Classical Greek statues and paintings focused on godlike caricatures ripped straight out of mythology, stories of ancient Athens and Sparta, gods and demigods, that sort of thing. These characters basically strutted around doing heroic things or, at times, rested calmly, luxuriously, enjoying an idealized version of the good life, appearing fairly stoic as a caricaturized world and the life that it contained went about its business around them. Hellenic Greek art, in contrast, and Hellenic is the term used for this period within Greece, while Hellenistic is the term applied to other cultures, mimicking the same look and feel in their own region, Hellenic Greek art shifted dramatically toward realism, focusing especially on what in Greek is called pathos and ethos, emotion and character. Human beings went from being cartoonishly godlike, then, to admirably and understandably human, within a relatively short period of time. Over a thousand years later, in the 15th century, a Hellenistic statue was unearthed in Rome. This statue, called Pasquino by the locals, is notable as having been draped in a toga by a cardinal of the Catholic Church in the early 16th century. The statue was of a man from the waist up, so the toga rested upon its shoulders like it would a normal human being. This adornment was meant to be decoration for a local religious holiday, St. Mark's Day, and it was accompanied by a few little bits of written poetry, also in celebration of the day. These celebratory actions by this cardinal led to a tradition amongst the common folk of attaching little writings to this particular statue throughout the year. But rather than being broadly positive and celebratory statements, most of these subsequent pieces by the commoners, who were not, unlike the cardinal, living lives of luxury paid for by the church in general, they were primarily clever criticisms of the church. 
things they wouldn't be able to get away with saying, but which they could anonymously post to this statue, venting their complaints without consequence. Thus, Pasquino, the waste-up statue of a Greek man, produced in a humanistic, non-idealized style, became the first talking statue of Rome, a statue where locals anonymously post criticisms of the church alongside satire, reports of injustices conducted in the church's name, and a great deal of what amounted to 16th century bad reviews for the services provided by their local government. This trend later spread throughout Rome to other primarily Hellenistic statues, so that different districts of the city had what amounted to their own statue-based public bulletin board system, an early social network, valuable in large part because the ability to leave writings for public consumption in these locations, where they knew the writings would be seen and read, allowed them to speak truth to power without the fear of retribution they might otherwise face. If they were to say the same things in the public square, or if they were to criticize their local authorities directly. What I'd like to talk about today is anonymity, whistleblowers, and the role both play in the development and maintenance of society. You are listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I'd like to start with today comes from the New York Times, and it's entitled, As Government Officials Testify Against Trump, Critics Question Why an Author Stays Anonymous. Before I get too deep into this episode, I want to address the fact that the impeachment hearings in the United States are a super polarizing topic, and though I think there will be a lot to unspool there someday, I'll likely wait until we can benefit from more context and a bit of retrospect before I attempt to cover that here on this show. So this episode touches on impeachment stuff, but it is not directly about the impeachment hearings. What it is about is a book that was until recently codenamed The December Project, now entitled A Warning and set to be released on November 19th, 2019, the same day that this episode goes live, actually. This book was apparently written by an anonymous senior Trump administration official, someone who works high up in the presidential food chain, in other words, who wrote this book and who is having it published without releasing his or her name. As it turns out, the book's author published a relatively famous opinion piece in the New York Times back in September 2018, which was entitled, I am part of the resistance inside the Trump administration. The subtitle was, I work for the president, but like-minded colleagues and I have vowed to thwart parts of his agenda and his worst inclinations. The Times vetted the author, they know who the person is, and decided to publish the piece anonymously, which is quite rare for them. But they did it because they believed the person's job and perhaps their safety would be in jeopardy otherwise. Later, a couple of literary agents from the Javelin Agency were called to meet with a senior member of the Trump administration, and the person they met with disclosed that he or she was the author of that anonymous opinion piece in the Times. They discussed the possibility of publishing a book, and because of the sensitivity of the situation, those agents did not shop the book around, as would be the typical way of doing things, and instead took it to the editorial director at 12, which is a sub-brand of Hachette, one of the largest publishers in the world. 
The negotiations were also unusual as the author did not want in advance. They didn't want to get paid up front, and they wanted to give a reportedly substantial portion of the royalties the book brought in to nonprofit groups supporting government accountability and press freedom. Those in their very small group of in-the-know people worked on the book in secret over the summer, keeping it a secret from even their own co-workers, only allowing the most necessary people in on what they were doing and then expediting the final stages when it was clear the impeachment inquiry into Trump was ramping up into something serious. The U.S. Justice Department sent a letter to Hachette, fishing for identifying details about who the author might be, after word of its impending publication hit the gossip circles of Washington, D.C., alongside a request for proof that the author had not signed a non-disclosure agreement with the administration and had not gained access to classified information. Hachette responded that they intended to defend the author's request for anonymity, though they were aware, as was the author, that the book itself might accidentally point at the identity of the author in myriad possible ways. In terms of why the author wants to remain anonymous in the first place, above and beyond the fact that they would almost certainly be fired and potentially targeted by the administration in the future, they also claimed, quote, removing my identity from the equation deprives him, him being President Trump, an opportunity to create a distraction. What will he do when there is no person to attack, only an idea, end quote. Now, the content of this book is reportedly interesting, but not terribly new or shocking. Anyone who's kept up with the news over the past several years is aware of how this administration is run, at least in the broad strokes. And a lot of the potentially scandalous information it contains has been broken by reporters for various news entities already. It is interesting, though, that there's been criticism from both sides of the political aisle on this, with Republicans mostly claiming that the author is a traitor, and the Democrats claiming that the author is a coward. After all, numerous current and previous administration officials have come forward, completely unmasked, on the record, to present their side of the story. And numerous whistleblowers have put themselves in harm's way to do the same. Why should this person, who reportedly considers themselves to be a more traditional, non-Trumpian, conservative Republican, be celebrated for doing less than these other people have done? Why should they be able to earn royalties from their stories, behind the relative safety of anonymity, when these other people's names and careers and reputations and perhaps even their safety is on the line. There's a really wonderful book that you may have already read, which was turned into a pretty solid movie as well, both entitled All the President's Men. The story of both book and film, concisely, is about the now-famous Watergate scandal, which was a scandal that involved the Nixon administration ham-fistedly planting recording devices in the Democratic Party's offices as a method of political espionage to spy on their enemies to try to win the next election. Nixon eventually resigned from office when it all came out, having lost his political power and the support of his own party, not yet having been impeached, but under threat of impeachment. So he quit so they couldn't fire him. That situation was very different from the current political situation in the United States, but there are some parallels, and one of them is that an anonymous insider serving as a whistleblower of sorts informed on the administration's actions from the inside, 
feeding information to reporters who were then able to, over the course of two years, unravel the story and figure out who was involved, publishing their findings in newspapers so the public could follow along with what they learned as they learned it. One of the more colorful characters of the Watergate story was the whistleblower, an informant who was referred to by the codename Deep Throat, a play on the title of a then-popular pornographic film, and a moniker that stuck until Mark Felt, then-deputy director of the FBI, confirmed in 2005, 33 years after the scandal, that he was the informant. Now, it's possible that Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein two key journalists who unraveled and reported upon the scandal and who benefited from the information that Felt slash Deep Throat was willing to give them. It's possible they would have figured out what was happening eventually, even lacking that leaked insider information. But several crucial tips from Felt allowed them to look in the right places at the right time, ask the right questions, and know the right names. So there's a decent chance that even if they had eventually gotten it all sorted out, by then the Nixon administration would have covered everything up, or orchestrated a situation in which there was no one left to report the administration's bad behavior to, or no one left to execute the law, even if it could be shown that the president and his people had broken it. There's a good chance that this modern-day anonymous book author truly believes their claims, that they can do more good from within the system than from without. There are convincing arguments to be made for taking such a position, for throwing stones from the inside, and doing so while there are other people tackling the same issue from the outside, using different means and approaches. It's possible that this person sees themselves as a modern-day deep throat, communicating not through journalists, but directly to the public, sort of using the massive megaphones of first the New York Times and then the Big Five publishers, they're able to dramatically increase the range of what they're shouting so more people will know the inside scoop. That's a compelling argument for remaining in place as long as possible, especially if you've been vetted by these entities and are thus able to use their megaphones but are not yet known by the administration that you're reporting upon and therefore have potentially more and more things to share through those megaphones. It's also possible, though, that what this person is really after is a type of immortality, not often granted to bureaucrats in any administration. They're looking to be the person who pricks the balloon, who catalyzes some big, dramatic political event. Maybe they perceive that the walls are closing in, and they're building an escape route predicated on being the person who fought from the inside, who risked it all to serve as a partisan fighter, separated from their fellow ideological countrymen by the walls of anonymity, but willing to suffer that discomfort and danger for the cause, and for the potential payout and prestige taking such a stand could offer if everything goes their way. It's actually been quite the week for anonymous informants. Alongside this book's impending release, the big story of the day, as of the day I'm recording this, is about a whistleblower who sparked the current impeachment process by filing a complaint about the president's conduct on a call with Ukrainian officials. The president reportedly offered those officials money that had been promised to them already to help defend against Russian incursions, if they did some investigating into Joe Biden and his son, the former of which President Trump might be running against in the upcoming 2020 presidential election. The implication was that if they did not help him out, they might not get that money. What this whistleblower heard was an apparent quid pro quo offer, 
the president essentially holding back U.S. aid to an ally unless that ally looked into or at least announced that they looked into his political opponent. Shady business that, if true, would be similar in some ways to the Nixon administration's efforts to hamstring their Democratic rivals using illegal tactics. Quid pro quo offers of that kind and blackmail of whatever shape using national resources to further your own personal gains. Those are big no-nos. Since that whistleblower came forward, there has been a great deal of effort, some surreptitious, some quite obvious and brazen, to unmask this person. The claim being that we cannot trust them without knowing who they are, and the fear being, in return, that if this person is unmasked, the Trump administration would do their best to smear them and their reputation so that they are seen as unreliable. And failing that, or perhaps alongside it, this person would be punished, either by the president himself or by one of his followers, some of whom have committed violence in his name, if not at his command, in the past. Today, there are reports from less reputable news agencies that they have the name, and some entities are reporting this claim as news while the others are reporting upon it, like it's a piece of gossip that we should all take very seriously. These are mostly Trump-leaning or borderline propaganda outfits thus far, but most left-leaning or unaligned agencies are bending over backward to report that someone is being named as the whistleblower by those other networks without themselves naming that name, which is probably prudent as said naming is putting the spotlight on a potentially random person and saying that they did something when the reality is that no one is quite certain yet. There is no hard evidence, just speculation, some of which seems to be predicated on Trump having insulted this person previously, which, if we're being honest, is not that exclusive a club of people. That said, this person, who I will also not name for the same reasons, is said to be a CIA officer and former National Security Council staffer, and has been previously criticized by Trump's people as being pro-Ukrainian and anti-Russia, and having leaked damaging information about the administration. Some Republican politicians are also tweeting this person's name without confirmation, and a few of them have attempted to tie the person to a conspiracy theory for which there is no factual backing that U.S. government officials conspired with the Ukrainian government to make it look like Trump and his people were seeking assistance from Russia during the 2016 election. So things are already getting tangled in strange ways even before we have an official name or enough facts to figure out how legitimate this person's claim might be. Importantly, though, the whistleblower's testimony has been supported and aspects of it have been verified by other people who are in positions to know the truth of such things. And part of why the Democrats decided to pull the trigger on a formal impeachment hearing is that, after hearing more of the same story from so many people, they felt confident that something illegal actually did go down and that something was illegal enough to be an impeachable offense. It's considered unlikely that the Democrats would risk gambling political reputation on what might turn out to be a fabricated story, though. So either they think this thing has legs, or they're just betting the drama of the impeachment undertaking will paint Trump with a negative brush in the run-up to the November 2020 election. Or perhaps both. Perhaps they think they can get an impeachment done, despite the fact that the Republican majority in the Senate will no doubt block any attempt to boot Trump from office. Anonymity is nudging this particular political story ahead in a strange way. 
but it's also, beyond the world of politics, generally considered to be a necessary ingredient for liberty and to enjoy the benefits of privacy. Being able to walk into a store and purchase something anonymously, for instance, in a non-surveilled, non-monitored way, allows people to buy things without worrying about the consequences of being discovered to have bought such a thing, to not have to worry that we'll be judged for it. So buying condoms or a sex toy or buying a politically right-leaning magazine or buying a book by someone who is controversial or someone who does not share your family's or government's religion. These are benefits of being able to browse and shop with relative anonymity. Looping back around to the talking statues of Rome, we see another benefit of anonymity, the ability to speak truth to power, to organize around causes, to demonstrate beliefs, and to find fellow travelers who share those beliefs. The early internet was predicated on many of these same precepts, and the history of publishing is riddled with examples of works that would not have been as effective, or which would not have been possible to have published in the first place, had the authors been known when they were published. The Federalist Papers of the United States, for instance, written by Alexander Hamilton, James Madison, and John Jay, under the pen name Publius, was a collection of 85 essays published in a variety of periodicals making the argument that voters in the young United States should ratify the Constitution, which at the time was just an idea, not yet a lawful document, and anything but the obvious choice. There are also numerous instances of women publishing under male-sounding names or using the moniker anonymous so as to be taken seriously by their intended audience, something that many women publishing under their own names struggled with at that time and still in some cases today. There are, of course, downsides to anonymity as well. When wearing literal or figurative masks, people will often behave in ways that they wouldn't in real life and generally not for the better. Normal, friendly, everyday people can become monsters on the internet, harassing and abusing strangers, living for the thrill of making someone else uncomfortable or angry, generally becoming weirdly bestial versions of themselves. And in a lot of cases, when research has been conducted on this by social scientists, as soon as such people are unmasked, their usernames connected to their real names, they realize what they've done or how they will now be seen by everyone else, their name connected to their actions, and they express remorse, regret, and change their behaviors, or they say they will, at least. Anonymity has been shown to reduce a person's perceived sense of accountability for their actions, which can result in their stepping over lines in the sand, engaging in taboo behaviors, things society does not approve of, perhaps, at times at least, for good reasons. At the same time, anonymity can allow people to bypass social taboos that are perhaps inequitable or harmful. Gay bars and clubs across the U.S., for instance, have at times had unspoken or enforced rules about divulging one's real name to strangers, just in case. This allowed a great many people to experiment and bypass social taboos about homosexuality, and eventually led to social demonstrations and other public acts that showed U.S. society that this was probably a taboo that we should move past as a nation. It's unlikely that such a movement would have grown had the people who became part of it lacked that ability to meet in person, and that ability to meet was itself enabled by relative or absolute anonymity. Anonymity can help people bypass the mental and social anchors of their existing labels and self-perceptions, helping them to become someone else for a time because the standard expectations are no longer being applied to them. There's a famous one-frame New Yorker comic from 1993 
in which a dog sitting at an old-school computer tells another dog, quote, on the internet, nobody knows you're a dog, end quote. The implication of that comic is that expectations and biases that normally follow you around do not exist in a space in which, as was often the case on the internet of 1993, you can be whomever you want to be. Your real name and life are not attached to your actions or words, and thus you can kind of start from scratch. You can pretend to be someone else, or you can be yourself with the rough edges sanded down. You can be a monstrous version of yourself, or you can change who you are every single day. And chances are good, no one will know that you have done this except you. You could be a dog at a keyboard, and no one would know. There are, fortunately and unfortunately, numerous forces intent on reducing the amount of anonymity that exists in the world, stemming from a variety of different sources. Many of these forces are incredibly mundane, but immensely effective. Those little loyalty cards that you often get from grocery stores, for instance, the ones that give you discounts on certain products and provide you with rewards if you buy certain things in certain quantities, those cards track your shopping behavior, sometimes pairing data gathered in this way with the in-store wireless network so as to track you by your phone as well as your eventual purchases. Sometimes that data is used in-house. In a lot of cases, though, it's sold to a data network that then packages it with other information collected about you and your cohorts, the collection of demographic categories that you've been put into by these types of entities, and it resells that freshly packaged data to any company that wants to more accurately target you and people like you as a customer. The information gathered in this way is arguably latently harmless, except that it allows these companies to manipulate us more successfully and more regularly into buying things that we may not need. They put us in a demographic box and they watch what we buy. And the knowledge that we are being watched in this way could keep us from behaving as ourselves, instead incentivizing us to behave the way that we believe others think we should behave. What's potentially damaging, above and beyond that though, is as more entities consider it to be normal to track us in this way, the less expectation of privacy and anonymity we have. And over time, that can mean we toe the line more reflexively, afraid to do what we want or say what we actually believe because we're afraid of who will see or hear us and what that might make them think about us. And as a consequence, we maintain the status quo at the expense of what could be, at the expense of continuing to grow as individuals and societies, and at the expense of moving beyond our current understanding of what's good and correct. There are pros and cons to anonymity, many of which are domain-specific, but some of which sprawl into just about every aspect of life. In the pro-anonymity category, we tend to see more people whistleblowing and generally calling foul on misbehavior and abuse, when doing so doesn't necessarily mean putting your personal well-being on the line, whether that means your job, your reputation and relationships, or your health. We also see the oppressed empowered by anonymity, empowered to speak truth to their oppressors. We see more people able to open up about concerns or misgivings or experiences they have because people can use an anonymous audience as a sounding board and or crowd-based therapist if they are also anonymous. And this kind of sharing can lead to more public awareness of uncomfortable experiences, thoughts, worries, and the like. It's also possible to see the world from beyond one's own bubble through the lens of anonymity. For a man to see what it is like to browse the internet as a woman, or an employer to get a sense of what their employees really think about conditions at the office, 
all possible because of a change of avatar, of name, or of some other designation that conceals who we are in real life. On the negative side, though, we do see vastly more trolls in the tangible world and online when anonymity is assured, or even just implied. We see a lot more crime taking place when people think their illegal behaviors will not be connected to their real-life law-abiding personas. There's also a lot more bullying when people don't feel that their avatar is connected to themselves, but also when other people residing within other avatars cease to seem like fully realized human beings and are instead just names on a screen or animated figures in a game. Anonymity can empower us, but it can also cause us to mentally disempower others, seeing them as less than a full person because we have nothing to go on in attempting to assess who they are, where they come from. There's no seed for empathy there. Anonymity can pull us out of ourselves, and that can be the best thing in the world, or the worst thing in the world. It's often both amazing and horrible for the same person at different times, and it can serve as both a pro and a con simultaneously. Looping back around to that Times piece, I personally suspect that both book author and Ukraine scandal whistleblower will be outed in the near future. The tools in the hands of those who wish to do this type of unmasking are quite powerful, and external actors like other governments but also random people on the internet will almost certainly see that they can gain favor with this U.S. administration if they bring one of these names, these identities, to the president and his people, stripping away their anonymity and opening them up for full-on counterattacks and potentially even vengeance. It is interesting, though, that these people have managed to stay anonymous for this long. In the world we live in today, with ubiquitous tracking on all of our devices, with security cameras everywhere you look, with the widespread ability to search this data and to feed a person's writing into sentence structure and grammar identification algorithms, you or I could do a pretty good job of tracking some random person if we really set our minds to it. All of which ensures that anyone with a little knowledge and a little time should be able to eventually connect a real person to their persona, unmasking them, bringing that untethered version of them back down to earth, and forcing them to accept the consequences of whatever their pseudonymous double might have done. We'll see where this story goes. There will almost certainly be new additions to the overall storyline before I publish this episode. The subject matter at the root of it being so fast-moving. But it's worth keeping this larger dynamic in mind with other stories as well, because the issue of anonymity and our ability or lack of ability to maintain it is also a swiftly moving target, ever-changing and as ever, neither purely helpful or purely harmful. The book that I'd like to recommend today is entitled Winners Take All, The Elite Charade of Changing the World by Anand Girdadas. This book was a bit of a surprise to me, actually. I suspected it would be a little bit more superficial than it was, perhaps unfairly because of a couple of reviews that I read ahead of time. But it turns out it's a very well-argued and somewhat paradigm-shifting book in that it argues a lot of the ways that we fund things these days is inherently flawed, because the philosophy behind it is that we allow those who succeed most under the current status quo to take some of their winnings and then contribute those winnings wherever they choose to do so. 
But those same people, in a lot of cases, are either actively or passively contributing to the perpetuation of a status quo that is itself inherently flawed and biased in their favor. Now, that's a very general way of describing this. I don't want to get too detailed into it so that you'll have an incentive to pick up the book. But this is something that we particularly see within the world of TED Talks and billionaires contributing to charity and wealthy people getting their names on buildings that they provided the funding for, all the incentives that exist for very well-established names to give money to charities of their choice. These are all systems that seem on their face to be a pretty good deal, and that in a lot of ways actually are, but that structurally are perhaps a lot more flawed and harmful than we typically recognize. So if any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of Winners Take All by Anand Girdadas. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find my blog at exilelifestyle.com, and you can find the show notes for this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsnotethings.com. I've got a new news analysis column that I'm publishing each week. You can find that and subscribe if you care to at understandery.com. And if you're keen to say howdy, you can do so on social media. I am at Colin is my name pretty much everywhere, but on Facebook, it's just Colin Wright. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week. Mm-hmm.